Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, PR people. You're listening to The Flag Pack, the official public relations podcast of Washington, D.C., the nation's media capital. In this era of social media, the concept of humility seems a lost cause. Yielding to one another, offering to take a back seat, resisting the urge to self-promote, avoiding personal pronouns that shamelessly say, look at me. Those are foreign concepts to many caught up in selfies and sharing on platforms that encourage us to talk about ourselves nonstop. When we do mention others, too many times it's because we seek a bounce from the association. There's something in it for me. If I mention them, they'll like me back, and that will get more people to notice me. There it is again. Humility is lacking in the public relations business, too. We're promoters, we've got ideas, we need to share them, and of course, we want the credit. Case studies, competitions, and sometimes even our clients require us to talk about what we've done, who we know, and how we can outperform the competition. If we aren't talking about ourselves, we don't think we can survive. So how then can someone like Harold Burson, a PR giant now 98 years young, claim so much success spanning three quarters of a century and still maintain his humility? You've waited long enough for the interview with Harold Burson. Humility, the importance of journalism, our industry as viewed through the lens of a pioneer, and corporate mismanagement. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Your host for today's episode of The Flat Pack is Robert Johnson, the president of the Washington Media Group. Happy Friday, guys. Happy, happy Friday. Friday. Are you really happy about Friday, or are you just pulling my leg? I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm happy about it. Are you? Yeah. Well, you know, there's plenty of TV to watch this weekend, <laughs> at least in Koji's case. March Madness. Oh, basketball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you basketball. do on the weekends? Ooh, try to get ahead with some schoolwork, you know? Oh. Try so, to be a little proactive. So studious. That's good. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> no, yeah. He's a veteran of foreign wars, yeah. Mr. <laughs> Koji Weber. Well, if you've listened to the Flag Pack before, you might be wondering about the voices you just heard. Of course, we know Koji. We don't hear much of him, but occasionally he does talk here on the Flag Pack, so we're familiar with his sound and who he is, but there's this other voice, familiar, new, it's Emma Ingram. You've been on this show before. I have, a couple times. You played the buzzer beater once. Ooh, that was fun and stressful. (laughs) Only one winner so far. I've heard. I've been keeping up every week. So you're in the big boat, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody's in your boat. We only have one person in the winner boat. It's good. It's all right. It's tough. Don't feel bad. Okay, thank you. You're making me feel better about it. Tell us why you're on this show today. So I'm here because Robert was kind enough to invite me to take part in this interview with Harold Burson and my work with the Public Relations Student Society of America. With that, I oversee our national podcast, and so we figured this would be a great opportunity to have Harold on not one, but two podcasts Yeah, this is like a joint venture. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's very exciting. So we're happy to have all of our regular Flag Pack listeners along, as well as everyone in the PRSSA world. It's a lot of students we're talking about. Over 10,000 for sure. 10,000. 10,000 downloads of this show. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's going to skyrocket every chart there is. Let's hope so. This is a special edition of the Flag Pack. Today, Emma, Koji, and I are doing the show. The rest of the pack is off on spring break. That also means we're taking some time off from our games and other features. We wanted to allow as much time as possible to share this conversation. The buzzer beater and Sarah Shelson's question of the week will be back next Friday. When did we take this drive to New York? I want to say the first or second week of February. I think you the 7th yeah. or 8th. The 8th. 8th. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, it's been a while. And the interview really took a few months to schedule. We had to work around our calendars, mostly Harold Burson's schedule, and, and, uh, well, I I think it's more fair to say mostly Emma's schedule. Hey, I'm a busy girl. You are. (laughs) I'm on vacation here. I'll be out of town here. I'm traveling this time. Yeah. I was like, I think it's going to take six months to figure this out. And it did. (laughs) It literally did. (laughs) 
Well, well, we got it done, though, and that's what counts. Now, I suppose there are some people in Flag Pack Nation listening who may not know who Harold Burson is. And yes, he is the Burson in Burson Marsteller, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Emma, why don't you tell us about Harold Burson? Harold Burson is a pioneer in the PR industry who actually got his start in the journalism field. Through capitalizing on opportunities and rising to different challenges, Mr. Burson became a globally known PR professional. For nearly 30 years, his first firm, Burson Marsteller, was the largest PR agency in the world. He's gained numerous awards and accolades over the course of his extensive career. Today, he continues coming into the New York City offices three days a week, and as Robert mentioned, he is 98 years young. It took us about four hours to make the drive from D.C. to New York. That's a lot of time to think about the process, the interview, the questions, meeting an icon like Harold Burson for the first time, someone that we've all read about. I'm wondering what the two of you were thinking while we were in that room waiting for him to arrive. Koji, did you have any thoughts going through your head? Were you nervous? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of anticipation just because I think in the classrooms or through textbooks, you kind of learn bits and pieces about some of the PR legends between Eddie Bernays and Ivy Lee and then Harold Burson. So that was definitely exciting. Our, I guess our anticipation was eased by Rita, his assistant, providing us with some sandwiches and refreshments. So definitely made the, the waiting a little easier. But yeah, it was really exciting to finally meet someone you read about and hear about and see the name on Burson Marsteller for, you know, however many years. So it was, it was a big moment. Emma? I'll echo that. I mean, Koji said it best. You know, we've learned about him over our past few years in academia and whatnot, and it's really just, like, shell-shocking that we had this opportunity. And I was, like, super excited. I mean, I was smiling, like, the whole day it felt like. It was just crazy. For about the next hour, we'll be presenting the best of our two-hour conversation with him according to topics. We think that's the best way to present all of the material that we covered. Emma, what are we going to talk about? Yes, we're going to be talking about some of his industry insights, you know, on what's going on in the PR field today, as well as some of the key takeaways that he has from his book, The Business of Persuasion. We'll also take a look at his career through, as mentioned, journalism, but then also public relations. And then last but not least, his legacy. Koji, you produced this interview. You were the guy behind the microphones, making sure everything worked. Can you paint a picture for the audience, the room, the setup, some of the very minor but important challenges we face in making sure that we captured this conversation appropriately? Yeah, so we were in a pretty big room. Basically, we're sitting around the table. So Robert and Emma were on one side and Mr. Burson was on the other. He is a very soft-spoken guy, so we wanted to be sure, A, that... He could be heard through the headset that we provided for him. So we made sure we had a sportscaster-style headset so it could kind of follow his movements and pick him up nicely, but also so he could hear what we were saying. And if you took the headset off, you could barely hear him because he's just so soft-spoken. But you put it on, and his voice kind of comes to life. So he was sipping a Diet Coke uh, during (laughs) the breaks in between segments which was on brand for him. And yeah, we wanted to make the process as comfortable as possible for him. Well, I think we were able to do that. He seemed to enjoy it when all was said and done. We talked about many things. We combed through all of the tape to bring you Burson's wisdom and insight. There were some light moments too. We call ourselves flax with attitudes around here, and he showed a little of that during our two-hour visit, the attitude part, that is. What about the conversation has stayed with you since then? For me, I think it was kind of like you mentioned, those light moments where we really got to see more of his personality shine through. We shared a few laughs that have definitely stuck with me. But I think the other thing, too, is that he cared about each of us. He asked each of us like a personal question. He wanted to know a little bit about us and where we came from and why we're there today. So that was nice. That was, you know, it kind of made it come full circle. Yeah, piggybacking off of that, I think he kind of showed – a softer side that, not that I didn't know he had one, but just because I've never met him before. There were some lighter moments, you know, where he kind of would tell a joke and his voice would rise a little bit, or he'd ask those personal questions about us. I thought that was really 
a nice glimpse into him and who he is rather than who he is as a PR icon and just kind of, you know, peeling back the layers of who he is as a person. Well, I've been doing interviews for nearly 40 years, and he caught me off guard with a question of his own at the beginning of our conversation. He wanted to talk about the name of the podcast, Flack Pack. Apparently, he took a little heat before we got there from a few of his trusted colleagues for going on a show with what some in our business consider an offensive name. Let's start there. I uh, come here with uh, my peril to some extent, as I'm sure that uh, some of my associates who may be listening to me will say, why would you want to be on a show that uses a pejorative in its name? The reason I can give you is that I'm here to defend public relations and say that public relations is not what a great majority of the public identifies as public relations. Also, uh, I uh, would like to uh, suppress the uh, thoughts that uh, there's a constant fight between the media and the uh, public relations uh, profession, the people who practice public relations. I think that uh, public relations couldn't operate without the media, and the media would find it extremely difficult and certainly more expensive if they did not have people on the public relations side to help them steer through uh, the uh, obstacles that they face in uh, digging out news today. Absolutely. Without the media, we wouldn't have a democracy that functions well. It's under attack right now, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And we're very interested. You were a journalist before you were a public relations counselor, so we do want to explore that. All I would say is that the flak pack is a great rhyme. Other than that, we're on board. So hopefully when the interview is done, you'll feel much better about this. Well, I hope so. I think so. That's our goal. With that taken care of, we begin with our first question. What's his view of the state of the PR industry today? It never has been better, although it is much more complicated today than it ever was. And it's going through a uh, transformational period. Really, we don't know where it's going to come out. And the disturbing factor or the motivating factor, of course, is the arrival of digital. I regard digital as a segment of a continuum that started with Gutenberg's printing press. And after you had the printing press in the 16th century, it took a long time to get a better way to communicate a faster way, and that was a telegraph. And the telegraph didn't come until around 1820, 1830. So it was almost three, 400 years that people depended on the printed page to uh, get their messages across. And then after, of course, uh, the telegraph, uh, about 1875, you got the telephone. And then around 1900, thereabouts, uh, early 20s, you got radio. And uh, around the 40s and 50s, you got television. And uh, up to that point, uh, of course, television was by far the most uh, impactful distribution methodology that you could use on people. You know, who would have thought you could have some spokesman for a product in your own living room? while you were in your own bed or looking at the television set. But uh, it took the better part of a century uh, for the next thing to come along, uh, which, of course, was digital. Digital, I think, is undoubtedly the most effective communications device that has been developed. One reason is... It has tremendous reach. 
it also is very economical. So it gives power to the people who want to uh, get attitudes and feelings out. Everybody can be a reporter with digital, and almost everybody can afford it. But it has a lot of problems, I think, that have yet to be resolved in the way of uh, security and privacy and things like that, which probably will reduce the uh, randomness of where messages can come from and what can be said. I think that right now the uh, our government, for one, is... Uh, really ducking the problem is not coming out with the uh, regulations that it should to uh, bring some order to what can you say on online and uh, how far can you go in, in your criticism and your description and so forth and so on. Hopefully that will get solved as time goes on. But... Uh, also, there's great confusion right now in who owns the digital in the way of uh, preparing material for it. What it has done, I think it has caused professional people in advertising, public relations, uh, merchandising, and so forth and so on, to realize that uh, they have got to use a combination of all of these methods of distribution to reach their publics. And uh, that is uh, being worked out now. The advertising agencies are uh, concerned because no longer is uh, the answer to every question they have a 30-second commercial. They now have clients who are saying, if they don't propose digital, the client will propose digital. A whole new group of uh, freelance artists and uh, designers and people who were doing various jobs that uh, had to do with getting material out to the customer are now uh, concentrating on uh, digital and there are several of them that have literally several thousand people working for them. They're a source of great competition to the uh, advertising agencies. The other thing is that the platforms themselves are saying, we know more about our medium so we can prepare the message and you don't even need an advertising agency. So... Then, of course, we in public relations, we've, we've always said, you know, we are not restricted to a 30-second commercial, so we've had to be a lot more nimble about uh, methods of penetration to get to the, the listener, to get to the prospective customer. And uh, so the PR firms are all scrambling, adding designers and more people who have been in radio, television, as opposed to the printed word. It's just remarkable, it seems to me, uh, what digital has been able to do. It's causing a lot of turnover in people. There was a time when if an advertising agency or public relations firm worked with a company for 15 or 20 years, there was a great affinity between the two parties. Uh, there was a loyalty between the two parties. Today, there's no institutional loyalty going either way, really. Big companies which at one time would not entertain looking at commercials that uh, freelance people would come in and show them. They're very open to those people today because a lot of those people have good ideas and they're not as loyal to the agency as they were before. So it's uh, 
trouble time uh, from that sense. It's an uncertain time, actually. On the other hand, I think on the public relations side, customers have taken into consideration the reputation of the corporation, the manufacturer, much more than they did before. I think before the loyalty was to the brand. And if the brand was sold, the person would stay with that brand. But if something happens at corporate headquarters that's adverse, people are sufficiently well informed to know that Procter & Gamble made Tide, or Coca-Cola has other products, and so forth and so on, and they will boycott them. And uh, so behavior becomes much more important from a customer standpoint than it was just a few years ago. What it has done, too, is I think that uh, the uh, people who are spokespeople are now under much greater control than they were before. The uh, standards that people set, of course, vary throughout the society, but and there's really no uh, real regulation on how far you can go either with language or actions on these things. And uh, that's an unsettling condition that we're operating on today. Diversity and inclusion are big topics. A lot of effort is put into the hiring and promotion of a diverse workforce. So we thought it would be interesting to know whether he thought it was important for PR businesses to reflect society. Well, I think it's very important because we are now really a diversified country. The change in population distribution by race, for example, uh, has just in the last 20, 25 years been really phenomenal and is moving at a faster pace than we thought it ever could. State of California is no longer a white state, so to speak. The white population in the United States in another 30 or 40 years is going to be smaller than the combination of Hispanics, African Americans, and Asians. So companies won't be able to ignore those groups, and they're not ignoring them now. If you look at television regularly today, you will be really amazed at the diversity on that screen. Even in the serious news shows, I uh, had a fall about 18 months ago and broke my uh, thigh bone. And I've been looking a lot at television. And the one thing that has amazed me is the difference in the people who are reporting this election as compared to last election, which was almost an all-white news cadre and all, nearly all men are 90% men. And now it's all over the map. And uh, I think it's wonderful. I think, I think one of the best things that's happened is the success of women in uh, politics these days. I think we'll get a more empathetic translation of conduct and uh, society will benefit from it. In his autobiography, The Business of Persuasion, Burson offers dozens of tips for PR pros. Those alone can make the book worth reading. He calls them takeaways. We read the book. Here's part of our conversation with him about some of those key points. Explain to us the role of the PR practitioner as a, quote, social radar for his or her organization. I think that's one of the uh, 
prime responsibilities, I think, of the function is to be able to anticipate what society is going to do, what the government is going to do, and be prepared for it and plan for it, and uh, have position papers on how it's going to react, and not be caught flat-footed without any responses. And that's getting more and more attention. One of the things that uh, we're doing more and more of are vulnerability studies. What can happen to us? And also start with the raw material and go through the disposal of the product and say, what can happen to this product that could possibly get us in trouble? And, you know, many processes and chemicals, other complicated manufacturing processes, there are segments of the process where you're using great amounts of electricity, for example, or you're transporting unstable type of products, something like that. What are we doing if something happens in transportation on the use of ordinary manufacturing if it goes through these dangerous phases where chemicals at that stage are poisonous. You get the poison out in the remainder of the process, but for X period of time, we account for how would we handle it if something happened. And uh, I think companies are doing much better knowing and preparing for these emergency situations. Continuing on the topic of your book, when you told the story of your time advising the U.S. Olympic Committee, you noted that, quote, the truth may be a defense in the court of law, but not in the court of public opinion. How did we get to this point today where people are tried and found guilty by the media and the public before they get their actual court date? That's a problem that we face with the media. I think it has to do with the quality of the, the media staff and also the relationships that have been built up. I think that uh, those situations occur more where there has not been a relationship established between the company and the media representative. That situation's in a state of flux. Today, getting the attention of a reporter, having lunch with him, is extremely difficult. And the reason for it is that the reporter in days gone by had a deadline, say for the morning paper, say five or six o'clock in the evening, and he or she, if they made that deadline, that's all they had to do. Now, if they work on a story, they've got to update it two or three or four times for the online edition they are writing that story all day long, and that's one of the reasons some of the wealthier papers, like the Times, you see so many double bylines. One of the people is writing, and one of the people is reporting. And so it's very difficult. You know, I've always had good relations with the media that covered my clients. And good relations means you go to dinner with them, you go to lunch. Sometimes you know their family, the reporter. Today, they'll have lunch with me, but if I call them today, we'll do it in April or in, <laughs> in May. And they want it very close to either where their client is or where their paper is, where the lunch and so it's, it's, it's harder and harder to establish those relationships now. 
And the papers themselves are cutting back on their staff so much that the reporter is doing, you know, the work of another reporter, too. So it's a difficult thing. We can't do our jobs without engaging with journalists. It's not that we always like what they report, but democracy depends on a robust media presence. Here's his response to our question about the threat to journalism around the world today and his view of our role in defending the news media. I think we should be in the front lines. I think we should be in the front lines of that. Not only because we're in the business that we're in that depends on them, but I think if we are committed to living in a democratic society, that unrestricted press is a necessity. I think Jefferson had some very stringent quotes on that subject, and, and I believe it. I think our government is not very cooperative right now. I think, you know, I think it's shameful the way that uh, Trump has responded to Saudi Arabia, for example. Do you think that PR people should continue to be outspoken? Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily think that, you know, we bring any special credential to it that uh, beyond uh, most citizens, you know, but I think we should be outspoken. The stakes are too high, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It used to be about one a year, two a year. Now, it's what, what seven or eight, I think, got killed this past year. And uh, I don't think the governments are handling it the way they should. Governments are costing it, actually. But I don't think we should go to war about it, but I think we should use sanctions and things like that against the Chinese, against the Russians, who... Uh, the Saudis. Saudis. Oh, the I Iranians. Think, yeah. yeah. North Korea. Yeah. Without a free press, I, I just don't think you can have a democratic country. It used to be that a soldier would, I mean, a newsman would get killed during the war. Well, I can understand that price covering the war, but to get put in jail and forgotten or be murdered as that Khashoggi head was. It's horrific. I think public relations people generally are not as vocal as they should be. The idea is some of them is we we should be neutral and not have a point of view. You can't spend any time with Harold Burson or his book without noticing how humble he is despite his long and distinguished career. We want to talk a little bit more about your career as it relates to some recognitions that you've received and some of the character traits that you exhibit. So, first, we've all read the memoir, and what strikes us about it in two or three words planted around this book is your continued sense of humility. It almost seems like when we read it, whether it was going back to the beginning in Memphis or Ole Miss or you know, getting married or expanding globally, whatever the story, you work in little things that say, I'm pinching myself. I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. I'm walking across the lawn of the White House. I can't believe it's me. You're a humble guy. Yeah. I wrote another book on our 50th anniversary. And uh, one of my closest friends said, you know, I read that book. What the hell did you do? <laughs> <laughs> 
because uh, I believe in selecting people who, as direct reports, I can totally trust, and I am willing to delegate more so than most executives. And I, and you talk about my humility, I just like Winston Churchill said about Clement Attlee, he said, Clem's a humble man, but he's got a lot to be humble about. <laughs> <laughs> I came from a very poor family. I haven't forgotten that. I uh, have a lot of sympathy for people who are struggling to just get along. And uh, I treated this company as though it was family. I haven't been CEO for 12, 14 years, I guess. But uh, when I was, it was a saying around here that if you're going to get dismissed, have Harold do it because he'll take care of you better <laughs> than anybody. And I've always felt that when we hire somebody and that person doesn't make it, we are partially responsible for it because we picked him or her. And that our resources are greater than that individual. And if our policy manual says they're entitled to three months' pay, I would probably add another month to it, something like, particularly if I had a family or something like that. And every now and then, I'd get out a memo about, we use the pronoun we and us, not I and me. And so we, I think, you know, built a team that liked one another, respected one another. And the other thing is that uh, I got my kicks out of client relationships. And uh, running the business was not anything that I craved to do. Basically, I seldom attended budget meetings. I had four people who I trusted implicitly, and they just never let me down. And 30 years, we became the largest firm in this field. Did either of you notice anything about his answer to that question? Well, I think the answer kind of lies within what he said, right? As in, he didn't directly address, I'm a humble person, or yes, I agree with what you said. It was more so that he's, whether intentional or not, demonstrating the type of humility that makes Harold Burson, Harold Burson. Yeah, and going off of that, you know, he did mention a little that he hasn't forgotten where he's come from to an extent. He mentioned his family and he's really stayed true to his roots. And I think that's something that has grounded him throughout his successful and extensive career. If you ask a humble person a question about him or herself, they don't answer it generally. No. That's why they're humble. Exactly. Along those lines, we wanted to know what he thought about a particular PR Week declaration about his life and career, announced some 20 years ago. In 1998, PR Week called you the century's most influential PR figure. A hundred years is a long time and covers a lot of PR history. What was going through your mind when you heard that news 21 years ago? They're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the PR people pretty much stuck to public relations and didn't get out. I traveled with man who was owned one of the largest construction companies in the country. You know, we would call on top people. And when I got out of the Army, I wanted to continue at that level in some way. And uh, I purposely 
try to get involved in activities that would throw me in the group. And one of the things I chose was Kennedy Center. And Kennedy Center at that time had just begun two years or so before. And if they were bringing in a group from out of town or something extra, they would go to different companies and say, will you sponsor? And I thought that was a hard way to live. And I suggested that uh, we form the Kennedy Center Corporate Fund, talk to the people in the business roundtable, and they said they would cooperate. And it ended up where we started in 1977, and uh, I made myself the permanent secretary. So I got to know hundreds of CEOs, 50 of them pretty well, I guess. Since then, we've raised about $250 million. Then I decided I wanted to do something in New York, and I I joined the Council on Economics and uh, got on the board. And when we had our 100th anniversary in 1997, the then president of it asked me to be chairman of the... Um, 100th anniversary dinner with a woman. And she said that she would like her legacy to be that she started an endowment fund for the club. And uh, I said, how much are you trying to raise? She said, at least a million dollars. And she said, I'd like to tie it in with the annual meeting dinner. And I said, well, if you do it my way, I'll raise the money for you. And she said, what is your way? I said, we're going to start the Centennial Club, and we're going to charge $10,000 to be in a life member of the club. And all we're going to need is 100 of them. We had about 600 members. <laughs> and she said, okay. And before we even announced it, we had 40. That's amazing. 40, 40 of My most recent activity was the American Revolution Center. I've been there. You've been there? Mm-hmm. It's a great museum. It certainly is. I was on the board from the beginning. It's amazing. And Good stuff. Uh, we raised $160 million, and uh, I was thoroughly instrumental. After talking about his work to help establish the Kennedy Center for the Arts in Washington, D.C., and the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, Burson finally allowed himself credit for taking the public relations agency model worldwide. I was really the one who changed it from a cottage industry to an international business. We were the first people to really say, this is a real business. And I got that idea while I was in the Army. I saw the devastation in Europe and figured, you know, this is going to have to be rebuilt and a lot of American companies are going to be coming over here and other parts of the world. In previous Flak Pack episodes, we shared Burson's stories about managing the cola wars between Pepsi and Coke and his work as a young journalist covering the Nuremberg War Trials. You can hear those stories in episodes posted over the last four or five weeks. When you interview a living legend, you really want to know everything, but there are questions you don't think to ask. Not to worry, Harold had us covered. I'm a first-generation American. My mother and father came from England, and so I had that background. I just wasn't a provincial American 
and I got that from my father, mainly who really uh, had a very unfortunate life. He was gassed in the First World War and had a lung problem his whole life. My mother really supported the family. So I had the international flavor that... The genes. The the bug. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so I have two sons, and one of them says, I'm the only person in my economic classification who drives a Buick. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. There's another great advertising pitch right there for Buick. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I never thought of how long I would live. My mother lived until one month short of 90. My father's brothers lived in the high 80s, so I had pretty good genes. But uh, I really didn't think I was old until I got to be 90. <laughs> If you could do this all over again, after everything we've discussed with him, what would your new final question be? Now that is a daunting task. This took a lot of thinking about. But one that I came up with would be, what does it take to be the next Harold Burson? That's good. Yeah. You know, a little bit about like, you know, how can young professionals like myself and Koji kind of prepare ourselves to be as distinguished, as successful, and as humble as him. But I'd be interested in his response. I'm sure it would be a little lighthearted. It might be. Yeah. Koji? I kind of just want to know what he wants his stamp on the public relations industry to be. You know, if someone's asking about Harold Burson in, say, 50 years, what he wants people to say or what he wants people to think. I don't know if he'd answer that because of his humility, but I am kind of interested to know what he kind of wants to shape his legacy into over time. Well, those are both very good questions. I'm bummed a little that we didn't ask them. There was one that we asked at the end, given how we started. It was my question. Let's listen to this. We're just so pleased that you took the time to sit down and talk to us about many of the things that are in your book, Mm -hmm. as well as some thoughts that are not, that are more tied to what's happening today. I have two real serious questions to finish. One of them is, I wondered if you noticed the color of the tie. I was going to mention that. Did you notice that? You're twinning. We match, but, you know, these these colors are meaningful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We are universal. Okay. Yeah. And it also, these are pretty close to the old Miss colors, aren't they? Yeah. Fairly close? I mean. They are the old Miss colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that, was not in, that was not by mistake. Yeah. Just FYI. And then the last question is, you know, you started this conversation thinking that maybe you had entered some perilous waters here, given our yeah. fancy name for, yeah. this, for this podcast, the yeah. Flack Pack, right? I just want to know, did we do okay? You did okay. You did very well. You said very well. So not as not as bad as you thought it would be. Well, no, I, I didn't. Th- I didn't think it would be bad. <laughs> but uh, I have a couple of friends and senior PR people, and uh, I, I I can see that hear them. Why did you you know, go on there? All you do is you give them eligibility, you know, and make them sort of you, you endorse their being. Right. So maybe maybe it'll be a little easier to defend this choice yeah, now after after people hear it. It will. Yeah. It will. No, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it, really. And uh, I look forward to hearing the finished products. Well, you've both done just an awesome job on this project. Did you enjoy the experience? I did, yeah. It was one I'll never forget. And we got him to sign a book, too. He signed everybody's book. Does anyone remember what he wrote in your book? I do. What was it? He wrote, For Koji, With All Good Wishes, signed HB and the date. Mine was the same, just to Emma, not Koji. He wrote something a little bit different in my book. 
he wrote, with fond memories of a nice afternoon. And I felt really good about that because it was a nice afternoon. It was a really nice afternoon. This is a good time to remind everyone about our contest for an autographed copy of Harold Burson's book, The Business of Persuasion. If you leave a review of our show, you'll be entered in the contest to win the book. It's easy to do, right from our Apple podcast page. Use another podcast app, like Spotify, you can do that there, too. You can listen, download, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, team, we've heard your new final question for Harold Burson, but here's my final question for you. My word to describe him is humility. What's yours? I'd say unwavering. I thought even though he was soft-spoken in terms of volume, he was very loud in terms of substance. So I got a lot out of his very strong-willed views about what he thought. I thought he did a really good job of just kind of saying what's on his mind, all straight talk, no dancing around the topic, and I really uh, respected that. Yeah, I think mine would be endless, just in terms of his career. He's still going into the office. He's still working, you know, to some extent. And as we've mentioned, he's 98 years old, and there's really, there's no end in sight for him. And I think everything he's been doing, there's it's just full force ahead, full steam ahead. Unwavering, endless humility. I think that that pretty much says it all. Thanks to both of you. You did a great job with this. I'm proud to have shared this experience with you. Thank you. I'm proud to have shared this experience with you. Well, that's it for this week. We're back next Friday, April 5th, with everything you love about the Flag Pack. Timely interviews, a fun and so far impossible PR game show takeoff, and mostly clueless city dwellers. We're reloading on our spring lineup, so make sure you never miss an episode. They're fresh, free, and always about public relations. Until then, I'm Robert Johnson. I'm Koji Weber. And I'm Emma Ingram, wishing you peace, love, and PR. PR.